You're listening to The Good GP, the podcast for busy GPs. Hello and welcome to The Good GP. I'm Sean Stevens, and this is a very special exam episode. It runs for approximately an hour and is aimed at candidates who have either just sat or who are about to sit the AKT exam. If you're lucky enough not to be one of those people, then I would suggest your time may be better spent listening to one of our other episodes. If you are an impending candidate or a recent candidate, then please listen on. Hello and welcome to the RACGP 2019 exam podcast. Today we're interviewing Dr. Robin Park and Dr. Helen Wilcox. Helen is Censor for WA and Robin is the National Assessment Advisor for the Applied Knowledge Test, or AKT. Welcome, guys. Thanks, John. Good to be here. Yeah, thanks, Sean. Thanks for having me. Great. So tell me, please, first of all, Helen, what's the purpose of the AKT? So the AKT stands for Applied Knowledge Test, and probably the most important letter there is the A. So this exam is designed to test not just knowledge but the skills to apply knowledge to a clinical situation. So we're not just looking at recall facts, we're looking more at clinical reasoning and higher order thinking. And that's why all the questions that we place in the AKT, they've got a clinical basis and they're built around a clinical scenario so that we're not testing facts in isolation from a clinical contrast. Rob, have you got an example or two of that that you could share? Yeah, so this is the key difference between the uh, uh, doing a specialist fellowship examination, which is what this one is, versus doing our medical school papers. So, um, for an example, in our last paper, the 2019 one paper, um, we had a specific question about gastroesophageal reflux disease. But we don't just ask uh, a simple question like, um, here's a gentleman, he's got postprandial retrosternal pain and he's got some water brash, what's the diagnosis? Um, because that would be a very medical student question. And here we're actually trying to assess higher levels of thinking and get candidates to demonstrate clinical reasoning. So in this question, uh, in the last paper, we asked, uh, we gave some more atypical type symptoms, such as altered voice in the morning. The fact the gentleman had lots of recent stressors. Um, he had some increased alcohol recently, giving him some increasing risk factors for developing gastroesophageal reflux disease. And then instead of just asking what the diagnosis is, we go the next step and we ask for what the appropriate treatment is. Um, and this is what's really important to keep in mind in the AKT is um, you need all that medical student knowledge. You need to know what the common symptoms or the, a- or the atypical symptoms are for gastroesophageal reflux disease. But then you have to apply them all together, which is exactly what we do in our rooms every day. And that's what we're trying to test in the AKT exam. So it's always important to keep this in mind when when studying for the exam and when preparing for this this specialist fellowship exam. Great. Thanks, Rob. Um, So if we look then, Helen, um, what sort of things would you use to to answer these sorts of questions? Well, you've got to remember that our clinical questions in the AKT, they're being written by GPs, and these are GPs who are currently working in clinical practice. And so the questions are designed to reflect the kinds of challenges that we see every day in GP land. So firstly, they might include just the common and the important and the high-frequency complaints that are encountered anywhere in Australia in in general practice. And I know uh, this last cycle's paper, Rob, had many examples of presentations that can occur across Australia. 
Yeah, I mean, the the exam is designed to assess a candidate's ability to work unsupervised um, in clinical practice anywhere within Australia. So that does mean that um, candidates or fellows of the college um, need to demonstrate that they have the skills to work in a rural area or to work with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander uh, people or to work with refugees, for example, um, so, for example, in the recent paper we had, we had some questions on travellers who've returned from Indonesia. We had a rural emergency presentation um, discussing acute management of uh, a patient presenting um, psychotic. Um, we had population health questions on understanding the pathophysiology of trachoma in Aboriginal populations. So we, we cover a broad range of topics um, that are required. It's important to remember that the bulk of the examination is always going to be on the most common presentations. So it's going to be on diabetes or heart disease or COPD, the things that walk through every uh, GP, every Australian GP's doors. Um, but also bear in mind that there will be questions that are from um, more diverse areas of general practice. And this is this is what we do every day. People walk in the door with, with not just always the common or the, the typical symptoms, but they come in sometimes in an atypical way. And we need to bear that in mind when you're studying and preparing. Yes, and I, I know that people do uh, often look at the ICPC categories to work out um, what uh, areas consider common and important, and they frequently come up against that category of what is what does general mean? And uh, we had a candidate for this exam uh, uh, give us a, submit us a question for today around that. So just to say briefly, when we have cases that are uh, tagged as general. These may merely mean disease in two or more body systems. They may mean preventative health. They may mean non-specific complaints such as fever or fatigue or irritability. And so what that says for me is that it's important to learn about the common presentations in general practice, not just the common conditions. So it's important to approach your study from the point of view of learn about shortness of breath not specifically learn about asthma or COPD or pulmonary embolism. Learn about learn about fever with a fever of unknown source as in children, as opposed to learning about meningitis, pneumonia, bronchiolitis, and the like. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. The ICPC you're talking about there is the International Classification for Primary Care, and it's a list of uh, presentations that uh, present to primary care. Um, across the world and um, can be a useful guide to have a look at to make sure that you've covered all the topics that are within there. Um, and that's what, Helen, I believe you're alluding to there with the ICPC too. And that's about right online. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. How much do you look at emerging knowledge um, in general practice? Well, I think the the paper is written, the paper is written afresh every time. And so emerging knowledge means that patient, the candidates in the exam need to be aware of various new guidelines that have come, come through. And if we think back about what we've seen clinically come across our desks in the last year or two, I can think of the cervical uh, cancer screening guidelines chasing. Any other ones which come to mind for you guys about um, recent change in commonly used GP guidelines? Um, I guess one of the things to be aware of in regards to guidelines, um, the cervical screening test uh, is a good example. Um, there are some myths and beliefs out there that the exam won't question uh, topics or guidelines that have been changed recently. And we know that within the very last paper, we had an exam question exactly on cervical screening testing. 
Um, and that was mainly because of the um, increased awareness of this and the change to current guidelines and that GPs who are working current practice every day um, will be using or need to understand those guidelines. So these will always come up um, as important um, topics within the exam. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a good point. It, it's really what we're seeing every day. It's not, um, you know, necessarily textbook knowledge. Um, and I think that's something that registrars struggle with. You know, certainly the AKT, of all the registrars I've supervised, the AKT is the most feared exam. But I tell them, look, just keep seeing patients and, uh, and reading around the cases that you're seeing, and, and that's what will help the most. Well, I think it's important to know that the one of the re- good reasons to do that is that multiple areas of knowledge frequently come up in one question. So basing your study around the patients that you see and reading about the conditions that you see is absolutely the best way to prepare for that. When we won't di- we won't ask you how do you diagnose diabetes, um, or we won't say this patient has an HbA1c of seven point two. What is the diagnosis? Because that's the kind of thing that we know that candidates could just look up in their rooms. So we don't need to know those individual facts. But it's probably more relevant to say this patient has diabetes, they're on a group of diabetes medication, they present to clinic with um, current genitourinary infection, and then we ask which drug is causing that that side effect. So in that case, we've we've asked um, two things. We've talked about differential diagnosis of urinary tract symptoms, and we've talked about knowledge of adverse effects of medications commonly used in diabetes, and they're the kind of patients that actually uh, present in general practice. Most of our patients have had a diagnosis made and we're moving on to management. I'm not sure if you've got any thoughts on that, Rob? No, that's very much the case. Um, It's about testing uh, the practical what comes through our door. Um, And, yeah, it'd be lovely. It'd be a lovely world of general practice where a patient comes in and they go, what's my result? And you go, your HbA1c is 7.2%. You have diabetes. Hooray. And then you go running out the door. Um, it, it doesn't happen like that. In general practice, you then have to know what does that mean to the person in front of you? How does the, the patient's demographics and situations change what you're going to do next? Um, so, uh, for example, in the last paper, um, we will ask um, questions not just on how do you diagnose diabetes, but um, we might give a significant side effect for a patient um, who's currently being diagnosed with diabetes and is on medications. And the question might ask something like a patient's got significant genitourinary symptoms and keeps getting bladder infections. What recent medication may they have been started upon? Um, the, this, this leads into a, an interesting point in that the, and Helen touched on this before, we don't want to ask things that people could just look up in their rooms instantly. So, you know, if you didn't know that 6.5% was the cutoff for diabetes, um, you could just Google it and, and find out. Um, the, so what we want to do is we will ask um, things like get people to come in with a symptom and the candidates, if they didn't realise that that symptom is linked to one of the diabetes drugs that the patient had started recently, then they wouldn't know that they needed to stop it and let alone they wouldn't even know they needed to go and look it up. So if a patient came in with lots of genital urinary infections, for example, in this setting, they'd go and have a whole heap of tests such as ultrasounds and multiple urine tests, etc., etc. Um, and this person might go through quite significant morbidity and, and cost um, that they may not need if a candidate realised that, hey, one of these diabetes medications causes this side effect. So that's why it's important to be aware not just of the simple things, particularly in regards to diabetes, but know a little bit more in depth about the presentations that present commonly to general practice. 
Yeah, great. Okay, what about things like evidence? I mean, that's a key part of being an on uh, an indefinite learner as part of the, being a good GP. Can you tell us what how you test the appraisal of evidence and understanding research results? So within the last paper um, and within uh, increasing uh, increasingly within the AKT, we are asking questions specific to evidence based medicine. So we in the last within the last couple of papers, we've had questions on sensitivity and specificity, the different types of relative risk, um, the understanding basic p values. Um, and this is obviously really important. This is things that general practitioners need to know and need to understand, particularly if a pharmaceutical rep brings in a, um, a new drug and they say, oh, this one's 50% better than the last one. Uh, you know, knowing whether that's a relative risk or an absolute risk or how much better is it, is that clinically significant, it is really important and is something that we need to demonstrate some skills of to protect our patients and make sure we're making the right clinical decisions for our patients every day. So we're going, to, we're going to ask those sort of questions within the AKT. Um, you might also get some of those within the KFP or OSCE increasingly as time goes on. Mm, okay, excellent. Well, that's a, a very important part of uh, our training and in our career as a GP, and I think it is a very important part to make sure that it's uh, examined and, and that we can do. If I can just chime in there, Sean, I think it's also quite a difficult area to prepare for in terms of the exam. and it's. It's not as easy as looking at the latest medicine today or finding a clinical guideline on the RICGP website. But there are, I've in preparing for this uh, podcast today, I did uncover a few uh, examples where that I think are suitable for registrars and other exam candidates. And if you look at um, AJGP, so the Australian Journal of Dental Practice, our college's um, evidence-based journal, middle of last year in June, there was an entire issue that was devoted to evidence-based medicine and um, implementation in general practice. I find that was very good. Uh, secondly, uh, there is an excellent Australian weekly blog titled um, evidencebasedmedicine.com.au and it talks about just morsels of evidence or small parts of evidence that's being distilled from current published articles in other peer-reviewed journals and made appropriate for the Australian general practice space. And I think if you get into using evidence-based medicine resources in your daily practice on your daily patients, such as the RACGP's handy resource, which is the Handbook of Non-Drug Interventions, and other uh, medication-based evidence-based medicine resources, such as those that come out of the National Prescribing Service, I think you'll get much more familiar with the, the simple, quick process of uh, analysing an intervention working out if it's valuable for your patients. Rob, do you have any additional thoughts there? No, I think that summarises it really nicely. Thanks, Alan. Great. Thanks, guys. Well, if we turn now to exam technique, um, which is what a lot of our registrars are interested in, what are some of the common errors in the AKT? Uh, Rob? Um, so there, there are quite a few different um, issues that come up on a regular basis. Um, a big key for a lot of people um, is how they approach an AKT question. Um, so... Um, People, uh, if you don't read the question properly, it's very hard to answer the question um, because often if you read the question and you miss a key piece of information or you haven't read it carefully enough, then you may well select the incorrect answer at the end. So it's always important when a person is looking at the AKT question in the first place to actually look at the scenario first. Um, and we always recommend this as a, as a basic starting point. So read through the scenario and we usually recommend that 
you don't look at the answers straight away. You think about, okay, have I seen a patient like this before or uh, what do I know about this sort of presentational scenario? And then try and think in your own head, okay, what would be the most likely answer or the most appropriate answer to this question? Some people will, uh, if it's a particularly difficult question or a longer question, they might scribble down a couple of key points or try and remember a couple of key points as they go. Um, but um, either way, you need to make sure that you're picking up most of the information. Um, and then once you've picked up those, you need to then go and check on any other information we might have provided, such as ECGs or images or um radiology reports etc so um and, and we know within the very last paper we had multiple ecgs and x-rays and audiology reports and ultrasound reports and spirometry all the things that we see every day in in general practice and i think that's really important to um, be aware that you need to be across these sorts of um, resources which will be available to you in everyday general practice and therefore will come up in the akt uh, Helen, what else would you recommend to do for uh, someone presenting with these, uh, working through a stem of a question? So I think you, you want to identify all the keywords in key information in the question, but then translate them to something that's more familiar for you based on your study. So if you've had the patients presented with multiple different symptoms, and perhaps the symptoms are expressed more in the patient perspective, and you want to translate those into clinical terms that are easy for your brain to attach a differential diagnosis in the clinical reason process. So, for example, if you've got a patient who's coming in saying they've got a racing heart and they're short of wind, you translate those to palpitations and exertional dyspnea, and that will then uh, mentally, intellectually link up with the appropriate path of diagnostic reasoning that you need to process that question. Is that the kind of thing you mean, Rob? Yeah, no, that's exactly what, what you should do um, because, as you've rightly pointed out, patients don't come in and go, oh, sorry, doc, I've got dysuria, uh, hematuria, and I've had some urinary frequency. What shall I do? I'd be nice sometimes. Uh, it might actually be quite helpful, but it doesn't usually happen. So, yes, yeah, so taking the stem and, and converting it into medical terminology so you can then work out what to do next because we will specifically not uh, put in what we call pathognomonic terms, meaning... Um, exact words that tend to link to certain diseases. So, for example, if we were doing a, a question on measles, we're not going to write, you examine the patient and see coplic spots. We might actually describe what those spots look like, um, but otherwise what will happen is candidates will just identify the word coplic and go, I don't need to read anything else in this entire question and just click measles. Um, so, so we won't give that. So it's important to actually not only... Um, know what patients are going to say, but also know what some specific medical terms mean. Uh, Coplex is a good example. Giving someone a positive Murphy sign would be another good example. Or describing a pill rolling tremor. You should know what these are and you should know how they relate to a certain disease, which will help you make your diagnosis. Um, and I think that's important to keep in mind. Mm, great. What about um, time management? I, I get queries about you know, am I going to run out of time? What's your view? Helen, do you want to address that one? It is a risk. It's a very dense exam. I think that time management for the AKT, I think, has become somewhat easier now that the exam is held across two days. I certainly found previously when we clustered the both exam, written exam segments on the same day, the cognitive load by uh, uh, when you were well and truly into the AKT, I think it was it was often difficult to, to work and think as sharply as you would like to. So I think that's um, the time management evolution. Make sure 
And in terms of uh, things that can be uh, done around that, just know the majority of candidates do finish within the time frame. But I believe, and Rob, you'd be dauntless to the exam paper, you'd know this the well, uh, the best. I know that the presumed difficulty of the questions is randomised evenly across the paper. Is that right? Yeah, that's completely correct. Um, and also in the past, the uh, single best answer or the sort of select a best answer from five options um, used to be at one side of the paper and what we call the modified extended matching questions or the, the select the best answer uh, questions, which have eight to 15 answers, um, used to be on the other end. Now they're all randomised together, which can actually help candidates a little bit with their, with their time management. Um, and you're you're completely correct. Time management is is less of an issue within this paper. Um, but um, having said that, I think it's really important for candidates to keep in mind that they should um, have some sort of tags in their own head or or ways to keep track of time. So, for example, um, work out where the half time mark is um, and where you should be up to seventy five questions in the AKT, for example. So you know that if you get to the two-hour mark and you realise, oh, hang on, I, uh, I'm only at question 60, then you might need to speed up a little bit. I think that's important to keep in mind. Okay, great. Thanks, guys. So, Rob, you've already answered a, a bit of this stuff, but do either of you ha- have any comments on how you should approach an AKT question? Uh, but the, the summary word is systematically. So, first of all, you want to start by reading the scenario. You don't jump down to the question. You don't jump down to the options for possible answers. You spend a bit of time on that little clinical grab up front. And for some candidates, they like to actually um, scribble down their scribble paper, the keywords, just to cement them in their mind. But either way, you just want to go through and pull out those keywords. And this is the point at which you also do the interpretation of any images that you can look at, maybe clinical images such as skin, uh, ECGs. What other kind of images do we see in the exam, Rob? Uh, clinical images would be common. Um, x-rays, so typical x-rays that should be able to be interpreted within Australian general practice, such as if you're out in the country working in a rural hospital, um, you should be able to look at a chest x-ray and pick up a lobar pneumonia. Uh, these are fairly typical things. We often get the argument, oh, yes, but the radiology will tell, radiologist will tell us. Well, that's not always going to be the case, um, and it's important that Australian GPs are uh, know some uh, skills in regards to looking at x-rays. Because mistakes can be made, uh, for example, a radiologist could look at an X-ray of a different patient by accident. Uh, but then, if as the GP, as the GP, you go and look at the X-ray yourself, and you go, "Oh, well, there's a big low line pneumonia," I might just call the radiologist. Um, it's important that we have those skills, and therefore, they will come up in the exam. Mm, okay, Helen, did you have anything you wanted to add to that? Well, I think by, by this time you've you've been able to summarise the actual scenario in. A short, a short space, and then you want to also work out what kind of weight you put on the individual questions. And not every single item of occupational or social history will be clued to a diagnosis, but the vast majority will um, have been deliberately provided so that you've got some relevant relevant context for the diagnosis. Is that is that fair to say, Rob? Yeah, absolutely. We um, uh, we wouldn't be putting in uh, extra images or results and things if it didn't lead to. Um, changing or impacting upon the correct answer. So if there's an ECG within the question, um, there is an extremely good um, good chance that that ECG is going to be relevant to the answer that you're going to pick. Mm. And I think it's probably the same for history features as well. So, for example, if a person's presented with new onset asthma, 
the fact that they've taken up a job as a baker is probably relevant. <laughs> if you've got a patient who's presenting with a cough, the fact that they're on an ACE inhibitor is probably relevant. And I think the other reason why you want to identify all the clinical bits of information in the question is because those facts will change your possible list of causes. So if we're looking at a child with a um, urticarial rash, whether or not they're febrile or they've had a recent viral illness, will change your lift of dif- list of differentials from a viral-induced urticaria to uh, some other non-infectious trigger. Or um, another frequent example in general practice of a patient, you're seeing a patient with back pain. If there's associated weight loss, you're going to think more about um, serious underlying diagnosis than if they're systemically well, in which case you may be thinking more about chronic nonspecific back pain. So it's easy to overlook um, small single words um, such as the presence of fever that can change your diagnosis um, completely, but making sure that you've identified everything, all the keywords is one important step to protect against that. Yeah, Helen, that's a really important point. In the last exam paper, for example, we had a question uh, for a young child with um, the description of what would have sounded like a febrile slash afebrile seizure, um, but the key piece of information to pick up was that this seizure was now getting dangerously prolonged. Um, and therefore, the treatment that you're going to offer might be uh, something more uh, more immediate than, than just continuing to observe the child. And it's important if, if you didn't pick up on the duration of how long the symptoms had currently been, then you would be unlikely to pick up that um, the management might need to be different. So another good indication of how important it is to read the question and how important it is to appreciate all the information that's provided. But if I can just chime in now with the reverse of that, because the reverse is also true, in that if there's a piece of information in there which hasn't been written, don't make it up, don't add it in. So if the scenario does not list any medications that they're on, don't assume that they are on a medication that we've just determined to, we've decided to leave out to trick you. And have you got any examples in the recent paper that illustrate that, Rob? Yeah, so... Um, so- not specifically with the last paper, though there were a few situations where that came up. But a good example is when if someone comes in with shortness of breath on exertion, uh, we're not hiding the facts or we're not pretending that we're not going to tell you this guy had crushing chest pain two hours ago and diaphoresis and you know, palpitations and all the rest. If it's not written there, then you need to assume it's either not relevant or the patient doesn't have it. And that's that's really important to keep in mind because some candidates do. Um, almost create um, themselves some problems by um, adding in details or going, oh, maybe this question is trying to trick me by not telling me this this person is on a certain medication or this person has a certain past medical history disease. That's never going to be the case. We're never going to try and trick anyone um, because tricking people just weakens the strength of the exam. Um, so if it's if it's written there, take it as important. If it's not written there, take it as not important. Mm. Okay. Interesting. Um, one of the other things that registrars often ask is, how can I prepare for this exam? How, how do I make sure my study's been comprehensive? Helen, are you able to let me know some tips that I can pass on? So in terms of making sure that your study's been uh, comprehensive, I think Rob made it about finding uh, the lists of uh, common general practice presentations and conditions. One article that I've often uh, referred uh, registrars to is in early 2013, there was an article in, as it was known then, Australian Family Physician, where 
it listed the 100 common dental practice uh, presentations based on beach data and in, in order of frequency. And I think that's a really good uh, resource to that, that mirrors the our relative weight and value of the conditions as we as we do in general practice. So you, as you will see in that, um, there are, of course, some serious presentations uh, here as well, but there are also uh, plenty of non-serious but important presentations, yeah, simple preventative health, vaccination, developmental assessment, um, follow-up of results as well. But back to it, there's... Um, so having a, a good list of presentations uh, and conditions like that is really important and then being able to uh, use a good um, high-quality recent evidence-based resource to, to measure those. So perhaps at the end of this we can talk in a bit more detail about resources. I'm keen to spend a bit more time on uh, the approach to the individual questions. So hold that thought. Sean, hold that thought. Okay. I'm, I'm holding. Um Rob, did you have any any comments on that? Um, yeah, so um, I think one of the big things, uh, as Helen's highlighted, is the um, making sure you cover the breadth, uh, or sorry, I should say the width of general practice. Um, I guess one of the things I see for candidates who do unfortunately not um, successfully pass their AKT is often there are sections of questions um, or topic areas which they haven't covered as well as they otherwise might. Um, and um, as Helen said, we'll talk a little bit more at the end about how you might try and pick up on those areas. But um, but often as trainees, we tend to want to study areas we know well or study areas that we like, uh, which means that in the limited time we all have, we study those areas and we miss some of the um, bigger areas of medicine. So, for example, uh, male candidates may need to do a bit more study on uh, female medicine, for example, if those presentations are not coming to them. Or if you're working in an urban area, you might want to um, take note of that and realise that you might need to study a few um, rural scenarios or acute emergency medicine scenarios that might present to a small rural emergency department or present through your door. Um, so I think that is a, a really important thing to, to keep in mind. Um, I guess just... Um, passing back slightly to a topic or just adding a little bit more to a topic we talked about before, um, which is just going through um, how to answer a question in a bit more detail. Um, just to give a couple of examples, Helen gave the nice example of um, the baker um, being relevant in wheeze and an ACE inhibitor being relevant in cough. Um, and we've talked nicely about the positive and negative things within the STEM or within the history that you need to be aware of. Um, there are other situations where you need to be a little bit careful when reading the questions or answering the questions. Um, so, for example, the keyword in the actual question itself is really important. Um, so, for example, if we're asking about, say, the question is uh, on a certain topic and then ask for what is the very next step um, for this patient, um, we're usually asking that in a very, very specific way and we'll make it very, very clear that we want the next step or the next initial medication or the next initial management. And I think that's really important to be aware of because in uh, general practice, uh, so for example, a person, an elderly person with hematuria may well need to go on to have a cystoscopy down the track. So yes, a referral to a urologist may well be pertinent and important. Um, however, 
we're going to ask in our question whether you know what other things or other tests might need to be done. And the question might lead you towards needing imaging done, such as an ultrasound or a CTKUB, or it may lead you towards uh, are we going to try and clarify, classify this bleeding as um, glomerular bleeding or non-glomerular bleeding. Therefore, we need a urine um, with some more detail. So we'll make that quite clear as we go, but I think that's really important for patients to keep or for candidates to keep in mind when they're trying to answer their questions. Um, Helen, we, we also do some two-step questions. Do you want to talk on that? Yeah, we do. So um, we often uh, will have a question for around common presentations. So what we're trying to do there is look at your understanding of a person's illness. So, for example, last part I know we had uh, we posed a question about a patient with a level of cardiovascular disease risk and then we didn't ask what level of disease risk are they at or what is their most likely diagnosis. We asked about most appropriate next step in management. So what we're hoping candidates can do there is identify and quantify this person's risk, identify the most appropriate provisional diagnosis and then know what the next step in management is because that's exactly what we do in clinical practice. Yeah, and that's that's the key. Um, so, and I think that's really important. So, we will ask more detailed questions on common presentations, such as uh, diabetes or heart disease, uh, because these are things that general practitioners need to be able to manage and need to understand in in great detail. Um, however, um, often candidates, when they finish out, uh, when they when they leave the exam room, only remember the uh, perhaps the strange or unusual question uh, that was one question out of the one hundred and fifty that might have been on acromegaly or some important not-to-be-missed diagnosis. But you need to keep in mind when preparing for this exam and when seeing this exam that the bulk of the questions will be in the common presentations and they will be in the things that we do every day. And it's important to be aware of that. Um, do you usually recommend, Helen, any particular way to answer the questions? Uh, yes, I think there's a, again, there's a process you can go through. So Determine your best fit answer before you go down and look at the different options. So we've often spoken about with candidates about using the cover test. So cover up the list of options and then then come up with your answer and see if it is reflected in the list of options. And just avoid the bias of already seeing the uh, proposed answers. If that's incorrect, as in if your um, provisional diagnosis or your next step in provisional management isn't represented there, then work through each of the options in turn um, to evaluate those and look at the pros and cons. So you want to make sure that your option matches every part of the every part of the keywords and work out what is the most appropriate. So this I think is one of the most challenging things about the AKT is that several options or answers might be um, there are several options there which are not totally wrong, but there's there's only one which meets all the requirements of the question. And I know that that's a, a way of testing whether candidates really do have a deep understanding of the conditions they're treating their patients for. Are there any examples of that from the most recent paper, Rob? There was actually, Helen, yeah. So, um, so yeah, you're completely right. And the way we write the questions are, so if there's five options, there's usually the majority of candidates will be able to knock out one or two of those. Um, and then there might be three options left to choose from. Um, the next group of candidates uh, may well know the extra piece of information we've given that knocks out the third option. So then you come down to a choice between the last two. Um, and this is where um, we want our candidates to demonstrate their specialist level of knowledge. So within the last exam paper, uh, we had a question uh, with a uh, middle-aged woman who uh, presented with some vaginal symptoms. 
And most candidates could narrow down the options uh, for diagnosis um, quite simply um, down to a last one of two options, either bacterial vaginosis or atrophic vaginitis. Um, and I guess one of the, th- so what we then do is once you get down to those two, we give an extra piece of information that stronger candidates should be able to identify to help choose between the two. So in this case, there was um, a uh, discharge, uh, which would tend to go more towards bacterial vaginosis. And then the, we also gave the pH is slightly more alkaline than normal vaginal secretions. Um, and therefore, the most appropriate option to choose uh, from those two uh, was um, bacterial vaginosis. Um, and therefore, the stronger candidates would pick that. Um, and that's how we dis- how we work out who the stronger candidates are versus um, those who need a bit more study or a bit more time. Does that help answer that? Perhaps I guess what the, the the important thing then to think about is once once you get down to that point and and you're not sure which one of the two to choose, which would you usually uh, have you got any advice on how to go the next step, Helen? Any thoughts on that? So I think you you're looking about at that stage about doing some kind of reality check. So when in doubt, I got some very good advice from one of our old sensors in chief, which said. Think about seeing that specific patient in the context. So think about what you would do if this patient was in front of you. Think about the last patient that you saw was was like this. And assuming that you've been sort of working systematically in good broad general practice preparing for the exam, there's there will be hopefully a patient in your mind that you managed um, in the most appropriate way in general practice that you can then apply to this scenario. Okay. So we, we talked a bit before about um, how do you make your study comprehensive. Rob, when we were talking previously, you had some other thoughts on this. Do you want to just outline those for me? Yeah, sorry, I'll go back to that. Yeah, so um, so um, as I said before, the not covering the entire width of the, the curriculum is really important. Um, and therefore, um, you need to come up with some way to make sure that you're studying all the areas that you may or may not be strong in. Um, unfortunately, uh, we don't always know what we're not necessarily good in or something that's called in the literature uh, unconscious incompetence. Um, the way to try and identify those issues is by um, reflecting on your practice, so either asking supervisors or asking peers or doing random case analysis and, and looking at um, your notes and discussing them through with other people. Um, that's certainly one way to pick it up. A second way is to come up with a list. So, for example, we'll, I'll go back to that ICPC list because that's quite a nice list to use. And you can highlight on there what you feel comfortable with and what you don't feel comfortable with and, and what you think you, you should study and what you shouldn't study. Um, for example, if you were an orthopedic uh, surgeon in a past life or you'd spent hours doing orthopedics, uh, sorry, if you'd just spent years doing orthopedics before doing your general practice, then I probably wouldn't be spending a lot of time wading my way through um, musculoskeletal questions uh, because within the AKT, there's a good chance you'll probably get those correct anyway. However, if you hadn't seen a lot of skin, for example, while you were working in the hospital time and the clinic you work in has a specific skin doctor and therefore you're not seeing uh, all those patients are going to that skin doctor, then you may want to think about that in great detail. And this is one thing where I think candidates go a little bit wrong. The second thing to be aware of is once you've picked out your topics is making sure that you go and pick the right resources. So, for example, there are some exam banks and details um, that are shared around 
the which may be nice guidelines such as the the European guidelines or they might be American based guidelines or Canadian based guidelines this is uh, it's you need to be very clear this is an Australian exam we will ask Australian guidelines and what other countries do for their bowel cancer screening may be very different to what we do here. So you just need to be very, very careful on the resources you pick because studying for an exam is hard enough. But if you study the wrong resources and you learn the wrong thing, unlearning something can be even harder than learning in the first place. Uh, any other tips you give, Helen, in regards to covering that? About the kinds of, the kinds of resources, um, we've spoken a lot today about in reading about common conditions and common presentations, but I think it's only fair to just acknowledge that the RSCGP curriculum does have a broader scope than than this. There is a focus on medical, legal and ethical issues, systems of general practice, population health, and the critical appraisal of evidence we talked about previously. And Sean, as a very experienced supervisor, I think those more curly or complex areas of medicine is a way that you can uh, really support your registrars? How would you help them prepare for those aspects of an exam? I think, um, as I said previously, the case discussion. And I think for them being able to bounce um, stuff off um, the supervisor around um, the common stuff that they're seeing and, and even the sort of more complex stuff because often it's more nuanced and it's interesting the uh, the relationship between a, a registrar and supervisor. Often the registrars will know more around the resources that are available in terms of guidelines and um, latest evidence. What the supervisor can do is, is assist in um, sort of marrying that evidence to the complexities um, of real-life general practice. So, so I think as a supervisor, we, we can do that. And I must admit, I've, uh, in terms of exams, I think I probably add more value um, as far as the OSCE goes. But obviously, we're not talking about that today. No, I think that's fair. And in terms of a knowledge of medical legal resources to prepare for the exam, it's, it's, it's right to say that some of those more complex things are assessed more in the OSCE or the KFP uh, uh, segment. But uh, given that uh, candidates will now study the exams in sequence, moving from AKT through KFP and through OSCE, I think it's good to learn those kind of um, clinical and paraclinical streams uh, in, in parallel. Rob, as, a, as someone who has deep inside knowledge of the AKT, what are your thoughts on how we assess those kinds of domains in the AKT? Yeah, you're completely right. I mean, so... Uh, we've we've modelled some AKT questions in the past regarding asking more complex um, ethical legal issues, um, and they don't really work as a as a multiple choice question. So we do tend to lead those parts of the curriculum into the OSCE or into the KFP, where more detailed answers can be sought. Um, in the AKT, you may get some questions regarding consent. You may get some questions regarding. Um, uh, incompetence, and you may get some questions regarding um, um, referring. So I think in the very last paper, we had a, a young lady who was severe anorexia, um, anorexia nervosa, who um, was medically unstable. So we would then ask, um, what is the most appropriate step? And I think for that person, it was to be referred to hospital um, against their wishes. Um I can go into more detail on that question. but um, the um, And then there was another question on a patient who was acutely suicidal. So you're going to get those more um, common 
ethico-legal issues within the AKT, ones where you'll make a clinical decision um, in the room generally with the patient, those may well come up in the AKT. Stuff with more detail in regards to talking around the understanding of the ethico-legal framework of um, uh, having a peer who's going through their own medical issues, that's not going to come up in the AKT. That will come up in a KFP or OSCE scenario if it's going to come up at all. Mm. Okay. Well, just moving to our final couple of topics, um, what support can the college offer in terms of preparation? Uh, Helen? So there's a wealth of uh, resources for college preparation available through the uh, college website under the um, examinations and the education and uh, tabs. And we've been working to collate all these resources in the one place for easy access. So firstly, there's the exam support online modules, which are available through GP Learning, and they're free and they're available to all members. So they can be a useful look through for prospective candidates who aren't seeing this cycle or perhaps even supervisors. Would you say that those resources have still got relevance for those groups, Rob? Yeah, absolutely. I think as Sean pointed out, I think if supervisors can get a bit more understanding of the requirements for the written paper, such as having listened to this podcast um, or or something similar, I think it just helps helps the supervisor guide the registrar or the trainee um, to study and do the right thing. So, no, I think it's really relevant. Yeah. So uh, coming to actual uh, printed printed resources then or um, uh, traditional presentation-specific resources, the Australian Journal of General Practice, again, open access is um, is very central to the exam process. And I think if you are seeing a patient in your, in your practice uh, with a common or serious general practice condition, one of your first ports calls should be the recent archives of AJGP to find out the AJGP's approach to a patient with that presentation. And there are some good other Australian primary care open access resources such as Medicine Today or Australian Prescriber or the other resources um, produced by the National Prescribing Service, which I find uh, 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 give a good general practice scope probably in about the level of detail that we need to be able to study the exam. So additionally, you can read the public exam reports, and I think we've got those going back for about three or four years now. Is that right, Rob? Yeah, that's about right. Yes. And then there are clinical guidelines which have been endorsed by the RSCGP, also available on the website. We don't. The RSCGP does not exhaust or does not currently um, have a written endorsement, a published endorsement for all the guidelines that come out of all the major tertiary hospitals, but there are guidelines that come out of the major tertiary teaching hospitals which are very relevant to the exam, such as the ones from the Royal Children's Hospital in uh, Melbourne or the Royal Women's Hospital in in Melbourne for paediatrics and obstetrics and gynaecology, respectively. The major professional bodies, such as the Kidney Foundation, Heart Foundation, Lung Foundation, Stroke Foundation, Asthma Foundation, also have uh, guidelines which are written um, specifically for primary care. And then uh, a nice, nice, uh, lovely sort of collated guidelines being therapeutic guidelines, of which every year there seems to be um, another um, subset or volume added to those. Any other sources of guidelines that should be going to, Rob? Yeah, I think you've covered those quite nicely. I think, yeah, every coloured book. um, So RSCGP loves their red book and their green book and their white book and their 
I'm sure there'll be some other books coming out soon. Um, but yeah, making sure you're across those is obviously really important. I think you've, you've highlighted some of the other you know, important ones. There are some good um, things on GP learning itself as well. Um, so the ESO modules are useful, but there's also some specific learning modules on there, which can be quite good. Um, there's um, also ta- also mentioned here, we've, we've talked about the Australian Immunisation Handbook and being across immunisations um, and some of the Choosing Wisely campaign. And Australian Doctor has a guide to guidelines. Um, we're not endorsing Australian Doctor, but the guide that, that has a little table of guidelines which you could use to peruse and make sure you're covering the majority. Dermnet um, is really nice. It's a lovely resource from New Zealand with lots of pictures and uh, lots of great guidelines regarding different skin conditions. Um, and the imaging pathways are really nice. Um, they're really useful. For, uh, all these things that we've mentioned actually are really useful for clinical practice as well. Um, but the WA imaging pathways uh, pathways are, are great from um uh, i think that's from the wa government yeah that's right um yeah so so i think knowing all those sort of things is really useful um uh, the college also does their faculty workshops um so before each exam cycle each state or territory will have um faculty workshops available be that either face-to-face or with webinars um, and we're currently just updating all the PowerPoints and all the questions that are available for those um, faculty workshops, um, and they should be available for the next cycle, which um, looks really good. So I think that's definitely another resource to to go to. And as you've mentioned there um, in passing, Rob, using these resources not just as part of your after-hour study, but actually day-to-day in the clinic at the coalface attached to individual patients is probably the way to consolidate the knowledge in your head. Yeah, again, it's about using the right resources at the right time. If you go and read up the wrong resource and and do something that's slightly maybe not gold standard or not mainstream, you'll probably memorise that. And then when that question comes up in the exam, you'll click the wrong answer. So, yeah, so making sure you're using the right resources in your clinical practice will certainly help you choose the right answer in the AKT. Mm, It's much easier to learn something than have to unlearn something and replace it with something different. That's um, extremely difficult. Mm. Yeah, and certainly if you've got a patient in your mind that you are uh, attaching that to, I don't know about other people, but the sort of learning I do, it cements it much better when you've you've got a, a case to tie it to. Sean, as a supervisor, are there specific resources that we haven't mentioned so far that you direct your registrars towards? As far as the AKT goes, um, probably not. I think um, the uh, the f- ones that the, the practice exams that the faculties run uh, as a faculty chair, I, I would put in a very strong plug for them and I'd say get in early and get um, get go to those workshops because that seems to be the um, most value that, that people get out of it, of all the resources. So um, finally, uh, it's a stressful time uh, sitting exams and I think, you know, I don't think there's any candidate that doesn't get at least a little bit stressed around it all. Um, can you tell me, Helen, what are some of the services that are available to support candidates through the exam preparation process? So having support from your own healthcare team, so your own GP is invaluable. And if your GP has um, fellowed in the past, they will be able to truly empathise with the journey that you're on. Uh, for those people who don't have an attached GP or would prefer to uh, see someone from a different uh, uh, state or, or, or area, 
The RSEGP does have a GP support program, which is a free confidential counselling service provided by psychologists for RSEGP members. In each state, there is also the Doctors' Health Advisory Service, a 24-hour um, helpline, and that, again, is staffed by GPs or um, uh, practitioners that are GP-friendly GP and experienced with the, or familiar with the, the burden and stress placed on uh, those of us who work at the coalface. One thing that a, a registrar actually suggested to me is that many of the mental health programs that we actually suggest that our patients use have actually got a bit of applicability to ourselves. So some of the e-mental health programs uh, that can be found on the RACGP website under the e-mental health uh, uh, search uh, area and um, some of the ones that do online CBT, these can be really useful and they can be done in your own time and usually free or very little cost. Uh, some of the ones that I use a lot for my educated patients with high health literacy are things like This Way Up or Mindspot. I'm not sure if uh, Rob or Sean, you have particular ones that you think would be suitable for our, uh, our candidates? And no specific ones I use online. Um, the Mindspot's quite good. Uh, Mood Gym would be another one that's quite well known that was run. Yes, that's quite a good one too. Um, I'm interested, Sean, with, if you've got a, I, I don't know if you've been in this scenario, but if you get a candidate um, who you're supervising who has failed their, their exam, is there anything specific you found works well for them? Or, or I assume it's going to be very person-specific, but any, any general advice for other supervisors out there? Um, to be honest, I haven't had a registrar um, fail the exam, the, a registrar I've been supervising who's failed the exam. I have had registrars, you know, a number of registrars who've had mental health issues um, during their training with me. And I, I really think a good quality GP is just, you know, we, we advise all our patients um, that, you know, you need to have this ongoing relationship. I encourage all of my, my registrars, and we have it as part of the sort of resilience um, chat a um, couple of months into a term, I say, look, you need to find a GP that you click with. Um, you need to find a GP that you don't know personally, and you need, it needs to be a GP that you will respect and trust their judgment. And, and I think having that before you're going into the exam um, is probably the best way to go. And that way, if you do run into strife, if you do fail or you find that things are getting a bit much, you're not having to then meet the your treating GP and try and form a relationship. Um, you've already got that base there. And, and then, you know, that GP can do all the things that we do every day. They will know the good quality psychologists or counsellors in that area. Um, they'll be able to give you good general advice um, so yeah, I think that's the key thing. Other things, I think I like the Smiling Mind app, um, f just as again as a resilience um, thing. Um, and, um, and but then if you do run into strife and you do need time off, take the time off and you know sort of um, utilize all of those resources that you have: family, friends, GP. Get um, get some of the uh, the, the counselling services if you need it. So that that's been my approach when supervising registrars. So I think um, that probably brings us to the end of our podcast. Unless uh, Rob or Helen, you have any comments or any additional things you wanted to add? 
uh, only to only to those listening to say, um, I hope it's been of some value for you. This is the first time that we've uh, set up these uh, podcasts for feedback, so we would be uh, we're we're keen to hear from uh, candidates and supervisors about how valuable they've been. And uh, thank you very much for giving us your time this morning, both Sean and Rob. Yeah, thank you very much, both of you. I'd like to just um, yeah thank thank Helen and Sean for their, their uh, input uh, and discussion today. I think the final thing I would leave everyone with is um, that the AKT is a standard-based exam, so meaning uh, if everyone reaches the standard, 100% of people can pass. Um, and we would all be extremely happy if that happened because we need lots of GPs across the country. So we're all hoping that everyone passes, um, and um, I hope this goes some way to improving that and helping people through their journey to come out the other side with their fellowship. Great. Thanks, Rob, and thanks, Helen. And, um, yeah, here's to 2019 Part 2. 